Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Hello, church. And and as always, every Sunday, please check in if you've not already. Tell us who you, well, where you are. Checking in will let us see who you are. Let us know what your town and your state or your country is. We are in over 31 countries now, and all 50 states have had viewers in them. I don't know what the regular viewership of all the states is, but go to um, rsafeharbor.com and play with that interactive map. It's a lot of fun. If you're watching on a smart TV or other device that won't let you join the live chat, you can always make a comment, and that's a check-in for us. Thank you. Thanks for all the encouragement, and for those of you who have given so generously that allow us to pay our bills and eat and keep this thing going. And whatever we don't need, we're able to pass through to, to charities here or to charities near where you are, which is such a blessing. The story today is a story with... That, that everybody knows if you're a church person. We all know the story of Daniel. But I want to talk to you about Daniel and love. And that's not normally where we go with the book of Daniel. It's a very strange book. If you've not read it, there's a, there are shocking changes in the book. One major shocking change. First half is full of tragedy and triumph. We see a lion's den. We see a fiery furnace. We see a weird dream, strange prophecies, laws made against prayer. And then the stories of tragedy, triumph, and the winning of God takes a break. And very strange, detailed prophecy kicks in. They, it's really two different books. Uh, they, they don't seem to really mesh with each other. Some believe that there are two different authors. And it very well could be because there's no, nothing in the book that requires it to have all been written by one guy. But all of that's too much to cover in one sermon. So we're going to go at this a different way. Let's start by looking at the bare facts of Daniel and see how he got to Babylon in the first place. When the Bible speaks of Israel being taken into captivity, we need to get out of our head the concept that everybody in Israel was rounded up and marched off to captivity because that's not the way it worked. The whole population was never uprooted. That wouldn't work for the Babylonians, the Assyrians, whoever was capturing them. They would not want an entire nation there inside their nation, you know, hostile and against them. So instead, what they would do is they would take a percentage. And I was thought during the Babylonian captivity that Daniel was in, that maybe 10 to 15% of the population was taken. Who was taken? Royals. Anybody in a royal household, however you were connected by blood, marriage, inheritance, the royals were taken. Uh, What we would today call the academics, so philosophers, poets, teachers were taken. Any uh, politicians that had a directory role, such as any small town governors or uh, council members, those type of people went. And then the rich people were taken as well, because that way you could take all their stuff. Left behind 
were about 80%, 85% of the population, but with no leadership. Uh, their crops had been taken, their houses had been torched or trampled, and therefore they would start scattering, and uh, only a certain percentage would stay put in that area. Those that were taken into captivity, they, they were also separated, that 10 or 15%. Royal people were treated worse than the rest. The, we're going to talk about the rest first. The rest were generally put into what we would call refugee camps scattered among the empire. So it wasn't an all one camp. They would move them around. Sometimes, very often in fact, they would move these people between them and a competing empire. So that if that empire comes to attack us, they, the first people to die are all of these refugees that we've got. And that gives us time then to prepare and respond. Uh, there are remnants of this that you can see um, years ago. What was it? In the, in the early 80s, perhaps, the Iran-Iraq war that went on forever. And they would get young boys and young girls and drive them ahead of the army. Because that way, the other people would waste their bullets on them. But also, these people would set off the landmines. And they'd die, but not the precious Iranians. Uh, the Iraqis did this as well, but the Iranians actually specialized in that. In Puerto Rico, uh, one of my favorite places on the planet, in old San Juan, a historian walked Cami and I around and told us the story of La Perla, which is um, a very poor section, although improvements are being made as I speak, that stretches from the, the touristy old San Juan, which is just a fantastic place, down to the sea. And the historian told us, and I've not gone to check, I'm just going with what we're told, that these were the poor people, these were the, the you know, slave children, or the, you know, the children of slaves, rather, that people did not want in the higher society, so they, they had shoved them down there for the very purpose of, if they were going to be invaded by a foreign country, that these people would get hit first, which would give the people in the forts time to, um, to respond. If it's true, it's not unusual. And that's how they scattered the people. But the royals, there were people with royal blood and the priest, they would receive the worst treatment. Daniel, well, first of all, in the marching, the marching, they would often put a hook in the cheek and then a chain or a hook through the nose and a chain to link to the next one. And march them. If one went down, everybody is disfigured again. Everybody's bleeding. All along on the march, you, uh, if you slowed too much, if you complained, you could be beaten to death, humiliated. You could be mutilated, cutting off your nose, your ears. They, you were to be shamed the rest of your life. And if you were young and male and in the royal line, like Daniel, who was probably between 12 and 15 years old, you would be castrated. You would be made into a eunuch. Because we have little ears, I'm not going to describe any further. But doing that to young boys has lifetime effect. First of all, many of them would die from the shock, the pain, and the blood loss. Remember, there was no sedation given. There's no painkiller there uh, that will help you here. 
and there are no cauterizing equipment here although they did heat up hot metal things and shove them at you this was scarring pain the rest of your life and as a eunuch you would be gaining weight you would be having serious issues with your joints and vision because this was taken from you too soon and so harshly and again many would die but they had seen their families die these boys had also seen their families die they'd seen their mothers and sisters violated horribly and some of them then sold as slaves others killed by laughing soldiers this was horrid on every level now they would be required to bow down and call the very people who had treated them this way and the very king emperor who had demanded this treatment they would have to call him lord and master and serve them as servants little ways of showing everybody look these were my enemies now they're brutalized and they have to do anything I say the rest of your life and there's there's not going to be an ending where somebody rides to the rescue this is it what would you do I think most of us would have curled up and died I think most of us would have said I'm, I'm done uh, I refuse to eat I refuse I'm we might try for a little bit of revenge but action movie heroes aren't real none of them would have had much of a chance to poison their master's food or grab a knife and cut the throat of a jailer and free their people in fact back um, when was it? it was the late 70s maybe there was a series of movies being made by Sylvester Stallone and uh, Chuck Norris where one guy would go back to Vietnam and free all the POWs and defeat the Vietnamese army and to me even back then that was highly insulting to the tens of thousands of people who lost their lives because all we needed is this one guy to go do it these are fantasies and they're insults to our intelligence Daniel did not indulge in fantasies Daniel had, once you hear this, capitalize it in your head, kingdom eyes. He was not a pinball in Nebuchadnezzar's machine. He didn't live a, you did this, so I'm going to do that lifestyle. He didn't live in that kind of a world. He didn't even post negative comments about Babylon or give Nebuchadnezzar a bad Yelp review. I mean, he never spoke evil about him ever there's no record was he a pushover <laughs> no he told them when they first came said this is the diet you got to do become you know acceptable and he said no I won't do that because my religion won't let me do it he took the risk of dying right there whenever they said it's against the law to pray he prayed anyway he was not a pushover he had made a decision to follow God and that involved his diet it involved his prayer but it also involved living an honorable life even as others dishonor you this is an aspect of the book of Daniel that I think we've missed I'm impressed by the lion's den story I'm impressed by the faithfulness of the three young men tossed in the fiery furnace 
But I am more impressed by Daniel's response to his situation. He flowed with it. When I work with law enforcement groups uh, all over uh, the U.S. And, and Canada, and sometimes now um, more far afield, um, so far they've come to us, Slovenia and Croatia, but they're starting to invite me over there, so we'll see. But when I work with them or I work with uh, military people, or I work with first responders who have a great deal of stress, we talk about the stress reactions. Most people know the fight or flight response. If you're a first responder or military of any kind, you also know that it's far more common rather than fight or flight is freezing, the third F. People with training freeze. This is one of the reasons why boot camp is so brutal or should be because it teaches people not to freeze uh, even under the worst conditions that they've ever been in in their life. But there's another F, flow. I talk about the flow and we work with flow. And what that means, a mental flow, a physical flow, Daniel flowed. This was his situation. He decided to use whatever was in his hands to do whatever he could the best way he could with what he had where he was. He was never going to be a superhero. He was never going to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. He, what he could do was live a righteous life in spite of what happened to him. If we would only learn the power of decision to live a righteous life regardless of what happens to us. God likes to ask people, where are you? We see that a few times in scripture. And by that, he doesn't mean geographically. He means, come on, pay attention. What do you have? What do you have in your hands? Where are you? What can we, God and you, do with this? And it might be five loaves and fishes. It might be Moses' staff. But you can do something. And it will blow you away if you decide to use it for God. In a place where he was thrown in order to be humiliated and ashamed and afraid the rest of his life, a cowering servant, he chose a different path. He chose to be a representative of the king of kings as he served the king. He chose not to react. He chose to act, to live an on-purpose life. I'm going to say it again. Live an on-purpose life. Not bounced about by, by text and messages and by this and by that and by this new story and another breaking news. No, we are not pinballs. We are persons and we will choose what we do. We will not just react. He chose to do something hundreds of years before Christ was born. Before Jesus would command it. Daniel loved his enemies. Because he believed in God. And because of God, he loved his enemies. Love them? I mean, that's outrageous. Frankly, it is. And don't pretend that it isn't. Love your enemies? You know, God, didn't you see what they did to us? Don't you care what happened to my little sister? Don't you care that my mother is a slave somewhere? I'll never see her again. Don't you, you see, don't you care that your chosen people are now the lowest and most shame-ridden of slaves? 
That's the thing about love. You can't pretty up love. Love always costs you something. Always. And every day, many ways, you're going to have to decide if you're going to pay that cost. We may laugh about what it costs us when it comes to girlfriends or wives or husbands or kids or parents. But the fact is, love costs something. And loving your enemies costs a lot. You have to disengage from revenge fantasies. You have to drop them from your daydreams. You have to deny yourself a little self-righteous chest beating and calling for justice. No, you have to decide that you can live a just life and bring justice where you are rather than just complain. You will act with what you have. You have to decide that there's something and someone more important than you and bigger than your hopes and dreams. That's tough. I'm not going to pretend like it isn't. You think this was easy for Daniel? I don't. I don't think it was easy for Jesus. Jesus left the throne room of heaven to be born as a little sack of meat and blood. We call a baby. Yuck. He had to grow up hearing nasty things said about his mother. And after he grew up, he still heard nasty things said about his mother. His dad left, maybe died. We don't know. He's just out of the picture. He owned nothing. He didn't travel far. And the people that owned stuff thought they were a lot better than Jesus. And yet, what did he do? He responded in love. Cared for them. Healed them. Even died for them. Even to the point of forgiving the people who were actively nailing him to a piece of wood. Well, how do you, how do, you do that? Well, you don't do it by accident. You don't do it because you were just naturally born a forgiver. You know, that's... You have to be intentional. You have to decide that's what you're going to do. You're going to forgive and you're going to walk on. Now, forgiveness is an event and a process... It can take a long time. I get that. I do. But it has, to be, it has to be begun. But Daniel, I'm not sure that he was the same man at 15 that he was at 50. I think he got better. Physically, he would have gotten worse. It's just a byproduct of what happened to it. But he, he seemed to continually make the decision to be an honorable person in a dishonorable situation. You have to have kingdom eyes to do that. Kingdom eyes even when you look at the face of your enemy. He didn't look at Nebuchadnezzar as a deeply troubled, mentally ill man who reveled in killing and conquering, even though that's who Nebuchadnezzar was. Daniel saw him as a man who needed God. And he also knew Nebuchadnezzar was never going to seek God. Because he didn't even know God. So Daniel had to be a representative of God in front of the butcher, the madman. So that the butcher and the madman would have the opportunity to see that there was another God he had missed and he'd better pay attention. He decided to be the one who told him about God by demonstrating a life of faith. Jesus took this a step further, of course. 
He didn't wait till his country of origin was overthrown and he was taken captive across the deserts. He came to all of us in Bethlehem and Samaria and Gadarene and all over. You see the Samaritans, for example, to the Jews were the worst people in the world. Everybody has Samaritans in their head. I don't mean actual Samaritans who are almost going extinct as we speak at this time. But people that we think we're supposed to disapprove of so that God will like us. And I'm not going to give examples. Because your Samaritans may be different than the person next to you. But a lot of times you don't think you have any Samaritans at all. Then you'll see somebody and you go, oh, Samaritan. Will you love them? Will you view them with kingdom eyes? I think that's why Jesus made the point of going to the Samaritan woman and her being the first one he told that he was the son of God, the Messiah. Martin Luther King Jr. said <clears throat> about the good Samaritan story. The first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? <clears throat> Even on the cross, as he hung in incredible pain, dying, he looked around with kingdom eyes to see who he could help. He found John with his mother and arranged for her care. The thief on the cross made sure he knew he was going to paradise. He was fine with God. This is incredible, jaw-dropping and outrageous at the same time because this kind of love costs a lot and we've been asked to step up and do it. It is, it's honorable, it's courageous. Not only did Daniel and Jesus live honorable lives, they honored and valued those who they met even if those people did not strictly deserve being honored, Jesus and Daniel honored them. Daniel did not pour scorn or hateful words on Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus did not call down fire on those who were nailing him to the tree. They treated everyone from the high priest's servant to the thief on the cross with honor. And by doing so, they lived life of, lives of honor, courage, and love. And you can only do that when you view now through kingdom eyes. Daniel never returned to his homeland. He knew that. He knew that was going to happen. He read the book, the prophecy, that said it was going to be 70 years in captivity, and he knew he would never see his home again. He would have died an early death due to complications from being a eunuch, but he rose above the world by loving the people in the world where they were and who they were. He refused to become a person of hate when hate had done the evil around him. He did not join it. He rose above it. The strongest person in the room is the one who loves the most, even to the point of loving their enemy. Again, Martin Luther King Jr. said, let no man pull you so low as to hate him. Christians, we'll end just saying this. No matter what the world has done, all that matters is what you do, what you have decided to do. 
That's all that matters with this. We don't, we don't ignore, we don't pretend like there are no scars on us. Of course you're scarred. Of course you were mistreated. Of course evil was done to you. But Jesus showed us, you can rise above it all, even if you rise on a cross. And to the world, it will look like you've lost. But God sees us with kingdom eyes. Daniel in love. Let's take that with us this week. Be at peace.